and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. For this episode, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a look back at the movies at a specific date in the 1980s, May 23, 1980. We'll get back to the Orion Pictures miniseries in the next episode. Also, I wanted to offer my apologies. This episode is a week late from when I originally planned on doing it. It's just that the uh, situation of the past week has been kind of trying, and it's been hard to concentrate on this podcast when the world is burning to the ground. This has been a strange year. And 1980 was a strange year. The Iranian hostage crisis was in full effect. The U.S. men's hockey team defeated the Russians at the Winter Olympics in what was dubbed the Miracle on Ice in the United States and then pulled out of the Summer Olympics being held in the Soviet Union. ACDC frontman Bon Scott died after a heavy night of drinking. Ian Curtis of Joy Division committed suicide. And Mount St. Helens erupted in anger later the same day. CNN launched the world's first 24-hour news channel. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And the U.S. reintroduced draft registration for young men 18 to 25. Lech Walesa led his first shipyard strike in Poland. A dingo took a baby, allegedly. Reagan beat Carter in the presidential election. The Voyager 1 space probe took its first high-resolution photos of Saturn. A fire at the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas killed 85 people, and John Lennon was assassinated outside his apartment building. Amongst those born in 1980 were Kristen Bell, Nick Cannon, Anna Klumsky, Macaulay Culkin, Zoe Deschanel, Jenna Dewan, Ben Foster, Ryan Gosling, Zachary Levy, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Chris Pine, Christina Ricci, Sam Riley who would play Ian Curtis in a biography about the singer, Channing Tatum, Michelle Williams, and Venus Williams. The top ten songs in the nation this week were, from number ten to number one,
Music was just starting to get interesting again. I didn't even remember Hurt So Bad, Sexy Eyes, or Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer until I heard them researching this episode, and there's a darn good chance I'll never hear them again in my life. On television, the top 10 shows of the 1979-1980 season, which was just about to end, were, from number 10 to number 1, One Day at a Time, The Dukes of Hazard, The Jeffersons, Flow, Dallas, MASH, Alice, That's Incredible, Three's Company, and 60 Minutes. The next season, buoyed by the Who Shot JR phenomenon, Dallas would jump all the way to number one. But overall, television in 1980 was still far from being interesting again. Which brings us to the movies. 1980 was very much a transition year for cinema. Many of the movies still feel like they were from the 70s, although, as we will see, several of these will set the tone and help write the rules for what will become the look and feel of the 80s. The movies that were still playing at this time. All That Jazz, directed by Bob Fosse from 20th Century Fox. My dad had this weird rule around this time. I wasn't allowed to see any R-rated movies unless he took me to see them. It stemmed from my mom when I was eight, taking me to see the R-rated Marathon Man at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood with her boyfriend, Joel, whose mother ran a vegetarian restaurant out of her house next door to Lily Tomlin. My parents had split when I was five, in large part because my mom was becoming a free-spirited pseudo-hippie while my dad was Ron Swanson, 
before Parks and Rec co-creator Michael Schur was even born. He didn't like that I had nightmares about Laurence Olivier's Nazi dentist, and 44 years later, I still have nightmares about that damn Nazi dentist. And he took his role of parent in the parental guidance part of the movie rating deal very serious. Unless, of course, it was something he wanted to see, and he was stuck with me. So I got to see a lot of things I probably shouldn't have seen yet. And all that jazz was too much for a 12-year-old like me to take. Sure, I liked all the nude dancers, and so did my dad, which is why I'm certain he took me to see it. Not to show me naked women, I knew where he hid his playboys, and I think he knew I knew. He wanted to see the hot naked ladies, and Jessica Lange was hot in this movie. Anne Reinking was hot, and oh my god, Sandal Bergman was so damn hot. But there was so much I didn't get until I was much older. But what hooked me on the film was the behind-the-scenes sections when it came to making a movie. It's what would hook me on Albert Brooks in 1981 with Modern Romance, even though it was another movie that I wouldn't fully understand until years later. It's what would hook me on Fellini when I saw Eight and a Half at the Sash Mill Repertory Theater in Santa Cruz a few years later. And it's why Hooper remains my favorite Burt Reynolds movie. I love movies about movies. Anyway, all that jazz would be in its 23rd week of release and would have already won four of the nine Academy Awards it was nominated for. American Gigolo, directed by Paul Schrader from Paramount Pictures. Released in February, this surprise hit would be one of those movies that helped set the mood for what one segment of the movies would become. The look and feel of Gigolo predates MTV by a good year and a half, and you can draw a direct line from this to Flashdance and Footloose and Top Gun, all of which were also distributed by Paramount, and like this, mostly produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. I didn't see it until years after its release, and I don't remember much about it. I do know that I've never had a desire to see it again. American Gigolo would be in its 17th week of release. Call Me, which you heard earlier, was the main theme song for the film, written by Blondie lead singer Deborah Harry and the film's composer Giorgio Moroder. It would become the biggest-selling single of the year in the United States. The song would be nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Song and a Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal, but it would not get an Academy Award nomination. Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola from United Artists. I was utterly fascinated by Apocalypse Now by now, and it was purely visceral. I wouldn't know about Joseph Campbell or Joseph Conrad yet, the mythology of story, themes of imperialism and exploitation and moral corruption. It was the visuals, man, the action, the absurdity of people wanting to surf in the middle of a war zone. I wouldn't have seen Godfather 1 or 2 or The Conversation yet, so I wouldn't understand just how great a filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola was. I wouldn't yet understand why seeing a movie on 70mm film with 6-track magnetic Dolby stereo soundtrack was so important to the overall quality of the film at the time. But the seeds were planted. Seeing Apocalypse Now at a young age made me a better cinephile. Apocalypse Now would be in its 41st week of release and would have won two of the eight Academy Awards it was nominated for. Being There directed by Hal Ashby from United Artists. 
If you ever needed proof that Peter Sellers was amongst the greatest actors of his generation, one would have a myriad of movies to choose from because he was amongst the greatest actors of his generation. If you were to ask film fans what was Sellers' greatest performance, the most obvious one would not be one performance, but three separate and distinct characters he played in Stanley, Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. But I will always and forever go to being there. His chance, The Gardener, is, to borrow from a favorite book of mine, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Again, so many themes that I wouldn't fully understand until I was older, but it was so honest and beautiful that it would stick with me for years. I've seen it several times, and I regret that number is so small. Being There would be in its 23rd week of release and would have won one of the two Academy Awards it was nominated for, Melvin Douglas for Best Supporting Actor, 16 years after he had previously won in the same category for HUD. Best Boy, directed by Ira Wool from International Film Exchange. This was the Best Documentary Feature Oscar winner for 1979. Wool documented three years in the life of his cheery, mentally handicapped cousin Philly, who at 52 had always been taken care of by his parents, who were starting to get to the point where they were no longer going to be able to take care of him. It's a powerful and moving film, one you should seek out. Best Boy would be in its 13th week of release. The Black Stallion, directed by Carol Ballard from United Artists. When you're 12, you're not always the best cinephile. When you're 12 and there's no such thing as the internet, you notice even less things because a world of information is not always at your fingertip. You couldn't come home from the theater you just saw a black stallion at and marvel that the director of the movie had never directed a movie before, or that the cinematographer of this movie had only shot one movie before this, or that this would be the first produced screenplay for all three screenwriters credited for writing it, or that the leading actor for the movie, a young boy of just 11 when the film was made, was making his acting debut, not just in feature films, but acting, period. You wouldn't be aware that a bunch of novices under the guidance of an Oscar-winning writer, producer, and director like Francis Ford Coppola could ever make such a goddamn classic, but they did, and it's a fairly simple story. A young boy and a wild horse learn to depend on each other after they are shipwrecked off the coast of North Africa. They are eventually rescued, and the boy and his horse are returned to America, where they get in, into the racing game. And as much as I hate that part of the movie on an ethical level, it's impossible to hate the movie because of it. It is inarguably one of the most striking movies ever filmed, and it's worth multiple viewings over the course of one's life. The film also starred Terry Garr, Hoyt Axton, and the legendary Mickey Rooney. The Black Stallion would be in its 27th week of release. It would have been nominated for two Academy Awards, for Best Editing and for Best Supporting Actor Mickey Rooney, as well as receiving a Special Achievement Award for Best Sound Editing, which wasn't an annual award yet at that time. Blood Feud, directed by Lena Wertmuller, from Associated Film Distribution. Sophia Loren stars as the recently widowed wife of an Italian mobster in a time just as Mussolini and the fascists are taking over her country, who finds herself in an unexpected love triangle between herself, a determined attorney played by Marcella Mastroianni, and a low-rent criminal played by Giancarlo Giannini. Oh, that poor woman. 
The thriller would take them from the streets of Sicily to the tenements of New York City's Little Italy. It wouldn't be as successful with critics or audiences as Wertmuller's 1975 movie, movie Seven Beauties, which would have made her the first woman to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Director. And although Blood Feud was released in its home country in December 1978, it would not make it to American theaters for another 14 months. Blood Feud would have been in its 14th week of release. Charles et Lucie, directed by Nellie Kaplan from New Image Films. Ah, who doesn't love a good fish-out-of-water movie? The title characters are a down-on-their-luck couple in their early 50s who unexpectedly inherit a villa in the south of France. I'd never even heard of this movie until the Quad Cinema in New York City screened a series of the director's movies in the spring of 2019, and the reviews for the film from 40 years ago were not the kindest. Charles et Lucet would be in its third week of release. Coal Miner's Daughter, directed by Michael Apted from Universal Pictures. One of the things I've always found fascinating about this movie is the fact that it's based on an autobiography written by the author who was only 42 years old. But to be completely honest, I've never actually seen the movie. I've seen snippets of it here and there, and no disrespect to Miss Loretta Lynn, who is undeniably quite talented, but I'm not a big fan of country music, and I just have zero interest in movies about country music. I've never seen Honeysuckle Rose or Honky Tonk Man or Tender Mercies or Sweet Dreams. And I only saw that George Strait movie Pure Country because my date that night wanted to see it. I only saw Walk the Line because my wife wanted to see it. There are so many movies I do want to see and I still need to see. Why bother with stuff I'm not interested in? The Coal Miner's Daughter would be in its 12th week of release and would eventually be nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay, but would only win one, Sissy Spacek, for Best Actress. The Europeans, directed by James Ivory, from Levitt Pickman. This would be the ninth movie directed by James Ivory that would be produced by his longtime producer Ismail Merchant, and the eighth that would be written by Ruth Prower Jabala. There would be 14 more movies from this trio, that they would make together, which would receive a total of 29 Academy Award nominations, of which Ms. Javala would win two for Best Adapted Screenplay. The Europeans would be in its 33rd week of release and would have been nominated for one Academy Award for Best Costume Design. Fame, directed by Alan Parker from MGM and United Artists. The movie would be in its second week of limited release, playing in only three theaters, in Los Angeles, New York City, and Toronto. The reviews were quite good, but the film and its soundtrack hadn't quite exploded into the mainstream yet. It would be another two months before the song Fame, which would later win that year's Academy Award for Best Original Song, would hit number four on the Billboard Top 100 charts, and another four weeks until the film went into wide release. Fame would go on to gross 21 $2 million after 32 weeks in release. A fun fact about the movie, the original title for the film was Hot Lunch. Director Alan Parker would notice during filming one day that one of the movie theater marquees on 42nd Street, which showed adult movies, was playing a movie called Hot Lunch, which he later learned was a New York City slang for oral sex. Parker went to MGM and requested a new title for the film. 
MGM offered up several alternatives, including Break a Leg, Neon Dreams, Pizzazz, Razzle Dazzle, Shooting Stars, Spotlight, and Stage Struck. Parker didn't like any of these. And he would film the movie for another three weeks before he came up with the title Fame. The title may or may not have been in reference to the song by David Bowie. Bowie certainly thought so, but Parker doesn't remember. Fantasia from Walt Disney Pictures. This would technically be the eighth release of Fantasia into theaters, although this 1980 release would be much smaller than the 1977 or 1982 re-releases, showing only in a handful of theaters in major markets the film would have been in its second week of release. Friday the 13th, directed by Sean S. Cunningham from Paramount Pictures. This is where it all began. Twelve movies, a television series, video games, comic books, masks, t-shirts, toys, and a thousand other merchandise tie-ins. All because a cheap horror movie with a budget somewhere between $650,000 and $1.2 million dollars that was made outside the Hollywood studio system and acquired by a Hollywood studio because they weren't making films like this at the time. The film would go on to gross more than $40 million and would feature Kevin Bacon in his highest billing to date, fifth, and would be only the second time his character was even given a name, the first being Chip in Animal House two years earlier. Friday the 13th, which ironically came out on Friday the 9th, was in its third week of release. The Hollywood Nights, written and directed by Floyd Muttrux from Columbia Pictures. Muttrux had a strange career in Hollywood. Before Hollywood Nights, he was best known as writing the original story for the 1974 Alan Arkin James Conn comedy Freebie and the Bean. After Hollywood Nights, he would be best known for writing both American Me and Bound by Honor. The second movie was supposed to star and be directed by Edward James Olmos before he went to star in and direct the first movie, which was originally supposed to be directed by Floyd Muttrix in the late 70s, after Hal Ashby left that project to direct Being There, after he cast a then-unknown Edward James Olmos for the lead role. If it seems like I'm trying to avoid talking about the Hollywood Knights, it's because I am. It's a lame wannabe American graffiti that takes place in and around late 1950s Beverly Hills and stars the then 20-somethings Robert Wool and Tony Danza and the then 33-year-old Stuart Pankin as the teenaged members of a car club who discover their hangout is about to be torn down. If anyone bothers to watch this film today, it's usually to see Michelle Pfeiffer in her very first film role, and even that's not a very good reason to watch this stiff of a film. The Hollywood Nights would be in its second week of rim- limited release. It would get a wider release the following week and mostly disappear from theaters two weeks after that. Home Movies, directed by Brian De Palma from United Artists Classics. By this point in his career, De Palma had already directed nine feature films, including Carrie and The Fury, and was teaching film at his alma mater, Sarah Lawrence College. In 1978, he came up with the idea of making a feature film as a training exercise for his students. He would have the students write the movie, 
come up with the financing, and edit the movie. Keith Gordon, one of the students in the class, even though he had already been featured in Jaws 2, stars as a young would-be filmmaker who films everything that happens in his household, and Kirk Douglas, who had just worked with De Palma on The Fury, plays Gordon's teacher at school. Both characters would be partially modeled on De Palma. The film would also star Nancy Allen, who had starred in De Palma's Carrie and would marry the director during the production of this film, Vincent Gardinia, frequent De Palma collaborator Garrett Graham, and Teresa Saldana. When the students couldn't get all the funds they needed to make the movie, De Palma would call in his Hollywood friends like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to help bridge the gap. The film would open in Atlanta, Boston, Miami, and Washington, D.C. in early April before hitting New York City in mid-May. The film would not do very well, and further expansion of the film would be canceled after New York City. But it would be good for the director and its star, who would team on De Palma's next movie, Dress to Kill. Home Movies would be in its seventh week of release. Kill or Be Killed, directed by Ivan Hall from Film Ventures International. Thanks to the relative success of Chuck Norris in the late 1970s, smaller distributors were looking for their own Chuck Norris. Film Ventures would give this 1976 South African movie, originally called Karate Olympiad, a shot. For those not familiar with the movie star James Ryan, imagine smashing together the DNA of Mark DeCassis, Billy Drago, and David Carradine together. You'd get James Ryan. James Ryan never became an international action superstar, but Kill or Be Killed would do enough business in the United States that Film Ventures would commission a sequel entitled Kill and Kill Again, which would be written, filmed, and released into theaters less than a year later, May 8, 1981. Kill or Be Killed would be in its second week of release. Knife in the Head, directed by Reinhard Hauf from New Yorker Films. This was a 1978 West German drama starring Bruno Ganz as a man who struggles to remember the events of an evening that landed him in the hospital with a gunshot wound to the head. Like many a foreign film of its day, the time between the release in its home country and its release in America theaters would see a rather large gap, 18 months in this case. Vincent Camby of the New York Times would sing the film's praises in his review, and the National Board of Review would name it as one of the best foreign language films of the year. 1980, that is. Knife in the Head would be in its fifth week of release. Kramer vs. Kramer, written and directed by Robert Benton from Columbia Pictures. Upon its release, the movie would become, some, become something of a phenomenon, touching on so many issues that were rolling through the cultural zeitgeist at the time. Divorce, men's rights, women's rights, gender roles, single parenthood, and life-work balance. As a child of parents who were divorced when he was five, the 12-year-old me was fascinated by this film at the time of its release. It was one of the first times I could understand the whys of how adult relationships could break down and all the problems that they could entail. The film would make Meryl Streep a star, reignite Dustin Hoffman's career, and would go on to become the highest-grossing film released in 1979, earning more than 13 times its budget back for Columbia. Today, this movie would be a Netflix release, and we know this because Netflix released 
Kramer's spiritual brother, Noah Baumbach's marriage story, less than a year ago. Kramer vs. Kramer would be in its 24th week of release and would have already won five of the nine Academy Awards it was nominated for. Best Picture, two awards for Robert Benton, Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actor Dustin Hoffman, and Best Supporting Actress Meryl Streep, which makes no sense since she was the leading female role in the movie. La Caja Fall, directed by Edouard Molinaro, from United Artists Classics. Talk about a film with legs. La Caja Fall, which tells the story of a gay couple that must quote-unquote play it straight when their son brings his fiancé's conservative parents to dinner, would be well into its second year of release by this date. And even in unadjusted dollars, 42 years after its initial release, La Caja Fall is still the 11th highest-grossing foreign-language film ever released in the United States. The film was so popular worldwide that two sequels would be produced in 1980 and 1985, a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical written by Harvey Firestein, produced in 1983, and an American remake, The Birdcage, would follow in the 1990s. La Caja Fall would be in its 60th week of release, and would have already been nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Costume Design. Lady and the Tramp. This would be the third re-release of the movie into theaters after its initial release in June 1955. There would be one more theatrical release of the film in 1986 before it was retired from the screen, which for me is one of the sadder aspects of the home video revolution. I loved going to see classic Disney animated movies in theaters as a child in the 1970s, and I loved taking my younger brother to see them when he was a child in the 1980s. Considering how much Disney loves to use magical motifs when it comes to selling their product, I feel a good amount of magic disappeared when they eschewed regular theatrical re-releases of their classics. Sure, we have wider flat-screen televisions that can better encapsulate the experience of seeing a movie in theaters, but nothing beats seeing a movie like Lady and the Tramp on a 50-foot wide movie screen, the images larger than life, the sound enveloping you from all around. This release of Lady and the Tramp would be in its 12th week of release. Little Darlings, directed by Ronald F. Maxwell from Paramount Pictures. It's one of the few movies on this list I've never seen. At 12, I didn't particularly care about Tatum O'Neill or Christy McNichol playing 15-year-olds betting on who was going to lose their virginity first. As I got into my teens, there was an explosion of movies available anytime I wanted, either through cable television or video stores, and there were so many other movies that were higher on my need-to-see list. And then when I got older, it became too creepy to watch a movie about two 15-year-olds betting on who was going to lose their virginity first. The film would also feature an early starring role for Matt Dillon and a 13-year-old Cynthia Nixon as one of the fellow campers besides O'Neill and McNichol. The film would be a success grossing more than six times its budget, and Maxwell would make a series of forgettable films like The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia and Kid Co. for another decade before writing and directing Gettysburg and Gods and Generals, two epic Civil War dramas in 1993 and 2003. Little Darlings would be in its 10th week of release. 
The Long Riders, directed by Walter Hill from United Artists. You want to talk about one hell of a gimmick for a film. Writers, producers, stars, and brothers James and Stacy Keach decided the best way to portray four sets of outlaw brothers in the wild, wild west would be to have four sets of brothers play the brothers. The Keeches would play Jesse and Frank James, while David, Keith, and Robert Carradine would play the younger brothers. Dennis and Randy Quaid would play the Miller brothers, and Christopher and Nicholas Guest would, would play the Ford brothers. Pretty cool, right? And on top of that, the film also features Ever Carradine, Robert's daughter, and David and Keith's niece in a small role, and Kalen Keach, son of James and nephew of Stacy, to play Jesse James Jr., the son of the character his real-life dad is playing. The story of the James Younger gang has been told many times before, and has been told many times since, most noticeably in Andrew Dominic's brilliant 2007 film, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. The reviews for The Long Riders were rather mixed, and despite the off-stated belief that Western films were dead, the film actually made a small profit. The Long Riders would be in its second week of release. The Marriage of Maria Braun, written and directed by Rainer Werner Fassbinder, from New Yorker Films. The first part of his BRD trilogy, The Marriage of Maria Braun, stars the great Hanna Shigula as the wife of an imprisoned German soldier trying to adjust to life after World War II. This is the film that would take Fassbender from a regional filmmaker to a worldwide sensation. The movie would play in more than 25 countries, including being the first of more than 30 Fassbender movies to be shown in the then East Germany. In America, the film would become the highest-grossing German movie language to date. The Marriage of Maria Braun would be in its 32nd week of release. Meetings with Remarkable Men, directed by Peter Brook from Libra Films. Brook would be better known as a theater director than a filmmaker, although he did make one indisputable classic movie, the 1963 adaptation of William Golding's Lord of the Flies. This movie follows a Greek-Arminian mystic who, along with his companions, searches for truths in life through a series of discussions and vignettes. Terence Stamp is one of the companions and the only recognizable name in the cast. Meetings with Remarkable Men would be in its 43rd week of release. My Brilliant Career, directed by Gillian Armstrong from Analysis Film Releasing. Along with Fred Chapesi, Peter Weir, and George Miller, Armstrong was at the front of the Australian New Wave of the 1970s. My Brilliant Career would be her debut feature narrative after nearly a decade as a short and documentary filmmaker. It would be the film that would bring Judy Davis and Sam Neill international recognition. And it should be no surprise to anyone who's ever seen Judy Davis in, you know, anything, that she's absolutely dazzling as a late 19th century aspiring writer who finds it hard to succeed based on her circumstances. My brilliant career would be in its 17th week of release. Norma Ray, directed by Martin Ritt from 20th Century Fox. Martin Ritt was one of those directors who could just about direct anything. This is just a partial list of the 30 films he would direct during his 33-year filmmaking career. The Long Hot Summer, The Sound and the Fury, HUD, 
the spy who came in from the cold, the great white hope, Sounder, the front, Cross Creek, Murphy's Romance, and Nuts. His films would receive 30 Oscar nominations and would win five, including two for this film, Best Original Song, and Sally Field for Best Actress. Field would win for playing an apolitical woman who becomes involved with unionizing the workers at her textile factory after their health conditions are compromised due to poor working conditions. Field has never been better than here, as well as many of her co-stars, including Bo Bridges, Pat Hingle, Ron Liebman, Noble Willingham, and Grace Zabriskie. If you don't know them by name, you'll recognize each of them the moment they appear on screen. Norma Ray would be in its 65th week of release. The Nude Bomb, directed by Clive Donner from Universal Pictures. This was a theatrical reboot of the classic 1960s television series Get Smart, created by Mel Brooks and Buck Henry in 1965, but neither man would have any involvement in this movie, nor would most of the original cast of the series. Star Don Adams was hoping this would revive his career and maybe get an updated series on television screens, but it wouldn't work. The film was quite atrocious. The returns, not bad, but not good. And he'd have to wait a few more years to become semi-famous again as the voice of Inspector Gadget. And a fun fact, for a while, this film had the title Don Adams as Maxwell Smart in Would You Believe the Nude Bomb? arose by any other name indeed. The Nude Bomb would be in its third week of release. On the Nickel, written and directed by Ralph Waite from Seven Star Productions. Yeah, I didn't know Ralph Waite, a.k.a. Paul Walton from the long-running CBS drama, had ever written or directed a movie. He had directed 16 episodes of The Waltons and one episode of a show called The Mississippi that he was on after The Waltons ended, but this would be his sole feature effort. Donald Moffat would star as Sam, a recovering alcoholic who feels dissatisfied with his life of sobriety and goes back in search of the good times he enjoyed with his old, old friends living on Los Angeles' Skid Row. Waite would play one of his friends, and Waite would get a little-known singer-songwriter from Los Angeles to do the music for the film. Tom Waits. Sticks and stones will break my bones Always will be true When your mama's dead and gone I'll sing this lullaby just for you The film would essentially disappear for nearly 30 years after it played out in theaters occasionally popping up on cable TV, but not getting a proper home video release until a restored Blu-ray would be released in 2017. On the Nickel would be in its fourth week of release. Soupcon, written and directed by Jean-Charles Tachella from Durham Pike. Tachella at this time would be best known for his surprise 1975 international hit Cousine Cousine, which would be nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Actress and Best Original Screenplay. Today, he's still best known for Cousin Cousine, which would be remade in the States several years later by Joel Schumacher. Soupcon 
which was originally titled I Have Loved You a Long Time in its native France, and was later retitled Silver Anniversary for subsequent home video releases, features Jean Charmé and Marie Dubois as a married couple who mutually decide to split up and live their lives independently after their last child moves out of the house. That might not seem like a big deal today, but at that time it was something new and different. Sucon would be in its fourth week of release. Till Marriage Do Us Part, directed by Luigi Comancini from Franklin Media. This one sets the record for the longest time between its home country release and its American release of all the films we're talking about today. The Laura Antonelli sex comedy, as if there's any other kind of Laura Antonelli comedy, was released in Italy in October of 1974, but wouldn't arrive in theaters in America until July 1979. But here we are, ten months later, and the film is still playing in theaters. Raised as an orphan by nuns, Antonelli's character discovers on her wedding night that the man she just married is her half-brother. And the late, great Jean Rochefort plays their father. Till Marriage Do Us Part would be in its 46th week of release. The Tin Drum, directed by Volker Schlorndorf, from New World Pictures. My father's side of the family is from Germany, and growing up in Cleveland, German was the first language he learned before English, so when a German-language movie got released into American theaters, my dad was there. I don't know if he knew what the movie was about, just that there was a German movie playing in a local theater, and he took me to see it. I'm still not sure if I've ever fully recovered from seeing the tin drum when I was 12. The movie tells a story about an 11-year-old boy who, at the age of three, decides to remain a small child forever and harms himself to do so. As he travels through his young life, he is a direct witness to the atrocities of the Third Reich. It's a powerful film, and would overtake The Marriage of Maria Braun as the highest-grossing German-language film in America only several months after that film would claim the title. The Tin Drum would be in its sixth week of release. Tom Horn, directed by William Wired from Warner Brothers. This would be the penultimate film starring the legendary Steve McQueen, after starring in The Towering Inferno with Paul Newman in 1974, McQueen had taken four years off from acting. His first role back would be in the drama An Enemy of the People, based on the play by Henrik Ibsen. He would play against the Steve McQueen type as a long-haired, bearded, bespectacled doctor in a small Norwegian town. The film barely got a theatrical release in 1978, and Tom Horn was supposed to be his return to the Steve McQueen archetype audiences were familiar with. Based on the autobiography of the famed frontier scout and tracker who helped capture Geronimo, Tom Horn would have a long and arduous road to the screen. The film would burn through directors at a quick pace. Original director Don Siegel, best known for directing Clint Eastwood movies like the original Dirty Harry and Escape from Alcatraz, would butt heads with McQueen's demanding and erratic behavior and would leave just before production was supposed to begin. Elliot Silverstein, the director of Cat Baloo, A Man Called Horse, and The Car, a personal favorite of mine, came and went in quick fashion, and James William Guerrico, whose only directorial effort was 1973's Electric Glide in Blue, 
would be the director at the start of principal photography. Garrico would leave ten days after production started, refusing to take orders from McQueen. McQueen himself wanted to take over as director, but the Director's Guild has a very strict rule forbidding actors from taking over as director once production on a film has begun. So McQueen would bring in Weird, a television director best known for his work on MASH, The Streets of San Francisco, and The Rockford Files, to be the, quote, director, unquote. Tom Horn would be his only feature directing credit, but it is generally accepted that McQueen did most of the directing on set. Post-production would be a bitch, too. The producers would have two versions of the movie created, one that told the story in a linear fashion, and one which took the flashback route. After a series of not very well-received test screenings for both versions, the linear option was chosen as the final cut, and the film was sent out to theaters in March of 1980, and would disappear from theaters by June, having only earned $9 million at the box office. One major reason for the film's disappointing ticket sales was its violence. Tom Horn would be the first and only McQueen movie with an R rating. The film would also receive an unacceptable rating from the American Humane Society for its, the film team's treatment of the horses and other animals during the production of the film. McQueen would be featured in one more movie, The Hunter, which Paramount would release in August, before McQueen died of heart failure in Mexico in November, after surgery trying to treat the cancer he discovered he had while shooting Tom Horn. Tom Horn would be in its ninth week of release, although only its first weekend in New York City. Where the Buffalo Roam, directed by Art Linson from Universal Pictures. Longtime Bill Murray fans will tell you that there are two Bill Murray eras. Bill Murray before Where the Buffalo Roam, and Bill Murray after Where the Buffalo Roam. Murray didn't just portray Hunter S. Thompson, he became Hunter S. Thompson. Even the writers of Saturday Night Live, after Murray returned to the show after shooting the film, noted that he came back to the show complete with Thompson's trademark long black cigarette holder and dark aviator glasses, and Thompson's many nasty habits. Some will even argue that Murray never quite shook the Thompson persona, which is both awesome and tragic. Awesome because Bill Murray would never become the Bill fucking Murray we know and love today, but tragic because Where the Buffalo Roam is a real piece of shit film. The script and direction truly suck, and the editing is dreadful. Well, maybe it's not a total piece of shit. Murray is great. And Peter Boyle is totally bonkers as Thompson's friend and former attorney, Carl's Laszlo. And the music by Neil Young is great too, but the movie mostly sucks balls. Where the Buffalo Roam would be in its fifth week of release. Why Shoot the Teacher? Directed by Silvio Narazano from Quartet Films. Bud Court stars in this Canadian comedy drama about a Depression-era college graduate who takes a job as a schoolteacher in rural Saskatchewan because there are no other jobs available. Now, you'd think a movie with the star of Harold and Maude from our neighbor country to the north might not have so much trouble crossing the border, but it would take three years from its release in Canada to make it to American theaters. And when it was finally released on home video in 1981, the front 
cover touted the film as the second largest Canadian grossing film in history. That amount? $1.8 million. Canadian. Why Shoot the Teacher would be in its 19th week of release. Winds of Change, directed by Takashi Masunaga from Sanrio Films Distribution. Yes, Sanrio, the Hello Kitty people. For a while, they were distributing their own anime movies in Japan and in America. The film told five stories from Ovid's Metamorphosis, narrated by Paul Fries and set to the music of Joan Baez and Mick Jagger. And it was first shown in Albuquerque as Metamorphoses in November of 1978. That release was, to be polite, a disaster. The local paper called it a pale limitation of Fantasia. The film was quickly pulled from distribution, cut from 94 minutes to 87 minutes. Frieza's narration was replaced with new narration by two-time Academy Award winner Peter Ustinov, and the rock songs by Baez and Jagger were replaced with more disco-friendly music. And a new opening credit sequence that mimics the opening crawl of Star Wars was added, and then it was reissued as Winds of Change into theater starting in May 1979. The film would move from market to market every few weeks, finally making it to Los Angeles in late April of 1980. If you want to judge for yourself how good or bad of a movie it is, there's a pan-and-scan version of the movie that's rather easily found on YouTube. Four new films would enter the marketplace this weekend. Going alphabetically, the first would be the Robbie Benson comedy, and again, I'm using air quotes there, Die Laughing. We covered this film on the first episode of our miniseries about Orion Pictures. It's not a good movie, and I'm trying to be as polite as possible. The next movie would become the highest grossing film of the year, and will most likely be in my top 10 favorite films of all time until I die. The Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Now, the creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. continuing story of our band of heroes, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca, and introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains. They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. A galactic odyssey against oppression.
big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer. The release of Empire would be another great example of just how much the movie industry has changed over the past 40 years. It was the hotly anticipated sequel to the biggest movie of all time, opening on Memorial Day weekend, a date which was becoming the official start of the summer movie season, when the studios dropped their blockbusters into thousands of theaters, and it opened in just 126 theaters nationwide, all of them 70mm prints with six-track magnetic Dolby stereo. And it wouldn't expand until week five into 820 theaters. It would expand again in week nine to 1,089 theaters, and then into 1,278 theaters in week 10. While most theaters played the film five times a day, usually every two and a half hours starting around noon, with some going as early as 10 a.m. and some going as late as 1 a.m., the Egyptian theater in Hollywood would play Empire 24 hours a day for the first six days. The original plan was only to go 24 hours for the first three days, but with only three theaters playing the film in all of Los Angeles County, and one of those theaters being a drive-in, demand was so high that they just kept going and going and going. The movie would also set a record for ticket prices in Los Angeles. $5.50 for adults at the Egyptian and the Avco Cinemas in Westwood, and three fifty for the Rosecrans Drive-In in Paramount. Of the 126 theaters that played Empire that opening weekend, 125 of them set new opening weekend house records. When the Memorial Day weekend was done, the film would have grossed $8.7 million after six days. The next closest film, the Gong Show movie, would only gross a quarter of that total in more than six times as many screens. And another fun fact, and another reminder of just how much our society has changed, the novelization for The Empire Strikes Back was released in the bookstores on April 12th, more than a month before the movie was released. Spoilers be damned! There were a few minor differences between the book and the movie. Yoda's skin is blue in the book, and his training of Luke is more extensive. But yes, that bombshell about Luke's parentage is there. And nobody cared. When Return of the Jedi came out three years later, the novel for that movie was released two weeks in advance, and still nobody cared. The Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie by a fairly wide margin, in large part because it really is what Lucas claims he wanted Raiders to be an homage to the serial series of the 1930s and 1940s, with its action and drama and romance and cliffhanger endings that wouldn't get resolved until the next episode. Think of all those major plot points just left hanging. What's going to happen to Han? Is Vader really Luke's father? Who is the, there is another, Obi-Wan speaks of? And instead of waiting seven days to see how it all got resolved, we were going to have to wait three years. Then there's the Gong Show movie. 
For a few glorious years in the late 70s, the gong show, a quote-unquote amateur talent show, was the closest thing to any kind of anarchy most suburban punks were going to be exposed to. It was mayhem, but controlled mayhem, and it would be our first introduction to some of the artists we would come to love in the ensuing years. Oingo Boingo had their first appearance on television on the gong show, although they were still more of a crazy vaudeville-style musical comedy troupe than a traditional rock band. Andrea McArdle was an early contestant on the show, just before she was cast as a title character in the Broadway musical Annie. And do you remember that disco hit, Got To Be Real? Cheryl Lynn got a record contract based on her gong show appearance and scored this top 40 hit not long after. Michael Winslow from the Police Academy movies also performed on the show while building up his resume, as did Paul Rubens and John Paragon years before they would become known as Pee Wee Herman and John B. the Genie. We also got the unknown comic, Gene Gene, the Dancing Machine, and a host of B- and C-level talents getting a few extra seconds of fame as the judges of each talent show. It was stupid. It was fun. But most of all, it was entertaining, which is what a game show and talent show should be. Chuck Barris, a longtime television producer and creator of such shows as The Dating Game and The Newlywed Game, came up with the idea for the show and hired Canadian television personality John Barber to host. Barber thought the show was a real talent show and not a cynical satire of a talent show and left the show just before the pilot was to be shot. Barris, who was not fond of appearing in front of the camera, reluctantly took over as host and the show would run on NBC and in syndication for four years. Why anyone thought it would translate well into a feature film, we may never know. The movie, directed by Barris, became a fictionalized version of a look behind the scenes of the creation of an episode of The Gong Show. Barris played himself, or a version of himself, who becomes so stressed out at the level of badness that is auditioning for his show that week, and the network executive breathing down his neck that he needs to flee to the desert in a weird mix of Zabriskie Point meets Eight and a Half, where he finds himself surrounded by the most inexplicable acts he has been presenting on the show. Barris co-wrote the script with Robert Downey Sr. during Downey's short-lived and disastrous attempt to become a company town filmmaker that also birthed the spectacularly bad Up the Academy, which would open in theaters just two weeks later. The Gong Show movie opened in 775 theaters that weekend and grossed $1.48 million dollars. Not very good, but it was a better opening than our next new movie, for one very good reason. But contrary to what you might find on the internet, the Gong Show movie was not pulled from theaters soon after its release. Yes, the film got horrible reviews, and it looks like a film that a bunch of 8th graders made in a community center-run filmmaking class, but the Gong Show movie actually ran in theaters for almost seven months mostly as the B-movie at drive-ins and dollar houses, 
and it would end up grossing $6.6 million, which is nearly four and a half times its opening weekend gross, which is actually somewhat remarkable. Avengers Endgame would only have a 2.4 multiplier. Black Panther's was 3.45, and 2002's Spider-Man was 3.51. But the film is bad. There's no doubt about that. It is so bad that despite being released in the theaters by Universal Studios, the Gong Show movie would never get any kind of home video release until Shout Factory put out a Blu-ray of the film 36 years later. Compared to all the other shit that would make it onto VHS and DVD and Blu-ray and cable and streaming all throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s and 2010s. That next new movie, The Shining. And again, a great example of how much things have changed over the years. Here is a major studio releasing the new Stanley Kubrick movie adapted from a novel by one of the hottest writers around starring a two-time Academy Award winner on ten screens nationwide. Seven in New York and three in Los Angeles and one of those... A drive-in. This is a horror movie from one of the biggest filmmakers in the industry based on a best-selling book from one of the biggest writers in fiction starring one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Ten screens. Kubrick had purchased the rights to the novel in November of 1976, three months before it was even published, and started shooting on the film in May of 1978. It might have actually started sooner, but Kubrick needed three months to write the screenplay after he rejected King's screenplay adaptation of his own novel. Shooting continued through the rest of 1978 and into 1979. At the end of January, a fire ripped through one of the active sets, causing nearly $2.5 million in damages and adding additional weeks to the production. Jack Nicholson's original contract gave Kubrick his services for six months, but the shoot would last until the end of April, tying the actor up for an entire year. And ever the perfectionist, Kubrick missed the original Christmas 1979 release date and almost missed the Friday, May 23, 1980 date, only delivering his final cut to Warner Brothers on Wednesday the 21st. Warners was able to strike enough prints to get them to the booked theaters in time and to even get a couple of press screenings completed on Thursday the 22nd. The film would do gangbusters in its first weekend, $622,000 in just four days. But the reviews? Not kind, to say the least. Many of the first wave of New York and Los Angeles critics only had a few hours after the screening, to think about how they felt about the movie and get those reviews written so they could make the Friday morning edition. And they scolded the film for not being a proper adaptation of King's novel. Daily Variety even predicted the film would be Warner's biggest box office disappointment since 1977's Exorcist II The Heretic. The Los Angeles Times critic said the film was too grandiose to be the jolter that horror pictures are expected to be. The New York Times critic said that the domestic side of the story was by far the more effective storyline and that the supernatural story knows 
frustratingly little rhyme or reason, even by supernatural standards. And the Wall Street Journal critic called it Kubrick's sadly disappointing venture into horror. Audiences didn't care. The film would play strongly for nearly eight months and would gross over $44 million. Fun fact, after the film was released, but before it went into wide release in early June, Kubrick edited two minutes out of the film. First, there was a short insert just before the push in towards the photo on the wall at the end. Some state troopers are looking for Jack in the frozen hedge maze, apparently unable to see him, although we, the audience, can. And then after the photo push-in, the Overlook's manager, Ullman, visits Danny and Wendy in a hospital and tries to convince them nothing supernatural happened at the hotel. To the best of my knowledge, this has only ever been screened one time outside of those initial ten theatrical engagements. And that was at the George Eastman House in New York in 2011. You can find recreations of the script with those scenes online, but I cannot find any video. In 2020, before our planet fell into a global pandemic that closed more than 99% of all American movie screens, you'd be hard-pressed to find many movies playing for more than 10 weeks, let alone 20 or 40 and definitely not for more than a year. The weekend of March 6th, the final full week of theater screenings before most theaters closed down, there were 103 films playing in theaters. Only 28 of those had even grossed $100,000 that weekend, and only four of the remaining 75 films was even playing on at least 100 screens. The longest playing movies in the top 50 that week? Parasite which had just won the Oscar for Best Picture a couple weeks earlier, was in its 22nd week of release. Jojo Rabbit was at 21 weeks. Ford v. Ferrari was at 17 weeks. Frozen 2 and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, both at 16 weeks. Knives Out, 15 weeks. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, 14 weeks. Jumanji 2, 13 weeks. And Rise of the Skywalker, 12 weeks. This specific week in 1980, there'd be more than a dozen films that had played in theaters longer than Parasite. I've worked at movie theaters for most of my adult life. I started as an usher at 18, became an assistant manager a month later, got my first theater as a general manager at 21, and kept going at it until I was 30. I took several years off to discover who I really was. I wasn't going to be a filmmaker. I would get married the day before my 31st birthday, divorced before my 34th, and married again before my 35th. I would start up Film Jerk when I was 32. We'd get written up in the New York Times, the New York Post, the New York Daily News, Newsday, and Entertainment Weekly, and we'd even get a positive mention in Mark Ebner's 2000 best-selling book, Hollywood Interrupted. I got to go to film festivals, I got to interview movie stars and directors, and I even got invited to appear as a talking head on television shows, and even once by the BBC to talk about Stanley Kubrick and his screenplay for Napoleon that never got made, although I ended up passing on that request to a friend, since by this time, I was back working at movie theaters. Film Jerk was fun, but I love working at movie theaters. If it weren't for this pandemic, I'd still be working at a movie theater today. 
Movie theaters have been a part of my adult life for all but eight years of that adult life. It's one of the best jobs in the world. Despite the occasional needy, pushy, rude, arrogant, demanding, irrational, irritating customer... When I started working at movie theaters in 1986, we had two-size popcorns and two-size sodas. And we only had Coke, Diet Coke, Sprite, Dr. Pepper, and maybe orange or root beer, if you were really lucky. We had maybe a dozen types of candies and one-size hot dog. We didn't have computerized box offices or concession registers. We had to keep track of your order and do all that math in our head, and you paid us with cash. That's it. There were no reserved seats. So if you wanted to see the 7 p.m. show of Aliens, one of the first movies I played in the summer of 1986, you'd have to buy your ticket at the box office after we were done selling tickets for the previous show and then wait in line until we cleaned up the theater and let the next show in. First come, first seated. If you wanted to know what was playing at the theater, you'd just call a recording at the theater and it would give you the, only the most basic information. Name of theater. Location of theater. When the box office opened and closed. The names of the movies playing at the theater. The rating. And the showtimes. Most theaters at the time had two to six screens. Although one had as many as 14. Most movies came on 2,000 foot reels of 35 millimeter film in metal cans often delivered by a courier truck late at night on a Thursday. It'd take about an hour to build a movie, piecing each reel together and loading it onto a film platter. Today you can go online, sometimes weeks in advance, pick the date and the showtime for the movie you're interested in, pick the seats you want to sit in from a map of available seats for that show, and you can pay for them with a wide variety of plastic options, as well as PayPal and other electronic payment systems. At some theaters, you can order your food in advance, too. You get emailed a QR code, which you just have scanned at the podium. No tickets issued. Just go to your theater and sit in your seats. You can go to the snack bar, where you can choose from a wide variety of food and drink options, dozens of candies to choose from, a number of hot food choices, too, like sliders or chicken strips or mozzarella sticks. At some theaters, you can choose from over 100 different kinds of soda, flavored water, or sports energy drink. Some theaters even have a bar where you can get a beer or wine. Some theaters offer a full bar. And some theaters even have a dine-in option where you order real food from a real menu at your seat and have it delivered to you at your seat. The movies are projected digitally off a server in the projection booth. And maybe the projector is in a pod that raises and lowers itself as necessary. The movies might be delivered on a hard drive, or maybe they're available to download from a satellite. But don't think of trying to steal a movie. You're going to need an encrypted key that is specifically set to a specific projector. And if the file doesn't see that key, it will not play, period. All this is just my own way of saying the movie industry has changed in dramatic ways during my own time working at theaters, and they will no doubt be changed once we reopen again soon. And that's our show for today. On our next episode, we will finish our journey through the films of Orion Pictures, covering the movies of 1989 in depth, and then go into some detail about the first half of the 1990s. Bill and Ted will have an excellent adventure, 
A beastie boy tries an acting career. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire! Weird Al Yankovic tries an acting career. Milos Forman makes his own dangerous liaison. Roseanne Barr tries an acting career, and against Meryl Streep for some reason. It's time to board Jim Jarmusch's mystery train. All that and much more. I hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show at this time, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please, help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which helps get the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.